we've been using the uh, Enneagram personality model to sort of use as a magnifying glass uh, or maybe even a mirror to look at ourselves and to discover our own sort of pathology, spiritual pathologies, to recognize that we don't see all that we need to see about ourselves and some of the most important things about us are hidden from us and become hills and hurdles to us spiritually speaking. And we're talking this morning about um, Enneagram 8s, which are known to be those that need to challenge, need to be right, need to be against. And uh, someone during the break had the uh, gall to tell me that I was dressed like the classic Enneagram 8 this morning, that is Steve Jobs. So I don't have the new balance on, but I guess something was going on in my mind this morning. I dressed like Steve Jobs. It's kind of an illustration, I guess. But we um, began as a, as a family, mostly myself and Elliot, to um, watch The Mandalorian uh, this weekend. Disney Plus kind of made a big splash, and we bought the, the trial uh, subscription to it. And it includes this show, The Mandalorian, includes some new Star Wars content, and it also includes all of the old Star Wars content, some of it which is really, really good, and some of it not so good. After we watched The Mandalorian, Elliot was a bit interested in the prequels, which he hadn't seen. So we started with Phantom Menace, and we lasted about 20 minutes. Elliot was laughing at all of the wrong places that you weren't supposed to be laughing at, but it has not aged well in the last 20 years. It's laughably bad, but there's also Empire Strikes Back, which is arguably one of the best films of all time, regardless of genre, even outside of the science fiction genre. And in the middle of Empire Strikes Back, Luke Skywalker has crash-landed on Dagobah, and Yoda is trying to teach him the ways of the Force, and he directs Luke to this very ominous-looking dark cave. And as they get near it, Luke says it makes him feel cold, makes him feel like death. And Yoda says in his sort of weird cadence, in you must go. Uh, that was a good impression, I'm, I'm sure. Luke, <clears throat> understandably, wants to know, well, what's in the cave? And Yoda responds, only what you take with you. Well, Luke, of course, straps on his lightsaber. And Yoda says, your weapons, you will not need them. But of course, he takes them anyway. And in a scene that was terribly scary, as a seven-year-old watching this in the theater, in this deep, dark cave, Darth Vader jumps out of nowhere in front of Luke. Scared me to death. Well, Luke then pulls out his lightsaber and cuts off Darth Vader's helmeted head, and the helmeted head rolls on the floor of the cave. This is PG, y'all. Well, the face mask of Darth Vader's shield falls off, and who is it? Whose face is in the mask? Luke Skywalker. He's cut off his own head in a way. Well, what would have happened if he had gone in without his sword? That is Luke. Was Darth Vader conjured by his fear? Is that what we're supposed to learn? 
by his unwillingness to trust Yoda or the force, he put himself in peril and he cut off his own head. He's his own worst enemy, as it were. Well, Enneagram 8s grew up believing, like most of us do, rightly so, that the world is a very dangerous place and that it's unwise to enter into the world without our armor, without our weapons. And they believe generally that vulnerability is the sure path to betrayal. So they don't go into the world unprotected. Their defense grid, if you will, it utilizes things like verbal confrontation. These are the people in your office space that don't mind having a difficult conversation, that'll tell it like it is. In the middle of a meeting, will naysay on whatever the boss might be saying. They don't mind being direct. Often they use aggressive speech. They're very direct and sometimes using just too honest communication. They can be a little bit undiplomatic. And conversation with an unhealthy eight can sometimes feel like a full contact sport. You need to put your helmet on and put your, your shoulder pads on because you might get hurt. And if you happen to be married to an eight, it can be rather confusing because you can be in a conversation that to you feels very kind of contentious and you might get your feelings hurt and your eight spouse will say, wait a minute, I just thought we were talking. I didn't know we were fighting because they don't sense the conversation that way. Direct communication feels like normal communication to them. They don't avoid conflict, conflict nearly as often as most of us do. And beyond that, they will actually seek it out if they sense something is unjust or unfair. If they sense hypocrisy, they'll state it. They'll say it. They'll point it out. They have a, a sixth sense to sniff out injustice. And if they sense a person in power is harming someone, they will engage that offender like Paul does in the passage that we read. They're going to set it right, and they don't mind being kind of a, a bull in a china shop conversationally. Now, Paul in this passage is very aggressive here, but he wasn't, it's important to note, confronting Peter over a personal slight. He wasn't being contentious over just a minor dispute, so it's careful that we don't make the wrong application here. Paul is addressing a church leader, that is Peter, who has a lot of power. And he's choosing to act in a hypocritical way that was spiritually harmful to the people in Galatia. And if allowed to kind of develop to scale, would have really harmed the worldwide church at that point. Because he was the man, he was the leader. And what he was doing was really undermining the very nature of the good news of Jesus itself. And so this passage doesn't give us just a broad license to confront whenever we feel like we've been wronged or whenever we are disputing some minor theological issue. Paul was confronting very real injustice that had very corporate implications and if it was taken to scale, it would actually re-enslave the Galatian church to 
the law, to be within and withheld in a religion of rules, the very thing that Jesus had come to liberate them from. And so this was not only a important issue, this was really the central issue that was the church was disputing at that time. And so he has every right to walk up to the most powerful man in the room and to confront him. Now, we don't know if the Apostle Paul is an eight, but he's certainly operating like a healthy eight in this manner because he has the courage to walk up into a room where Peter is the authority and say, this isn't right. Peter, you should repent. He puts himself, that is Paul, he puts himself at risk for others. He's not having a personal dispute with Peter. The problem you see that Enneagram 8's face isn't that they're too assertive or that they're overly direct. No, you see, this is often our problem. Because 8's don't typically conform to the more passive-aggressive and indirect conversational norms of our society. And so it makes us nervous. Wow, they really told me exactly what they thought. That feels very unnatural. But it also can feel refreshing, can't it, when you know where you stand with someone because they're not double and triple qualifying everything that they say. But generally, overly direct, somewhat aggressive people make us nervous. And we'd rather work on them than we would want to work on ourselves. And so often eights are kind of shut down or they're transferred to another department because they're problematic in meetings. And it's sad because surely eights need to develop trust with the people that they are being direct to. They, they can learn to be more diplomatic in their speech. But what a tragedy it would be to muzzle a possible eight like Martin Luther King and tell him, well, you need to be a little bit more diplomatic. You should just play nice. Be a little bit more obsequious. The problem isn't their assertiveness and their directness, but that they can often armor up, they can confront, they can assert more as a self-defense mechanism rather than pointing out real injustice and putting themselves at risk for other people. You see, what most often happens in an eight who just really hasn't done the hard internal work of rooting out their own kind of spiritual pathologies is that they project strength in order to protect a deep sense of vulnerability. They feel like a vulnerable child often, and so they provoke, they push, they assert, they confront. See, eights were often shaped by an experience of being run over. They had to fend for themselves or they might get bulldozed. They had to protect themselves. And they had received messages from a parent or a guardian or an elder or a church that it's not okay to show weakness. It's not okay and it's very unsafe to let your guard down. That's how you get hurt. Perhaps they've been told by a parent as they go off to middle school, hey, don't start a fight, but don't you ever, ever back down. Don't ever run from a fight. And so they armor up. 
Oftentimes, eights are very athletic. They're in the gym. They're developing their body. They're developing kind of their, their predatorial, defensive predatorial people. And so confrontation, naysaying, aggressiveness, talking over people are forms of what in the animal kingdom we would call dimatic behavior. This is the startled display. It's those animals that puff up, enlarge themselves, or they make themselves louder, more intimidating, to make a rival back down before the fight ever begins. And so therefore, there's, there's no chance of getting hurt. And that's often sort of the defense mechanism of an eight. If I can be intimidating, this person may not engage and may not hurt me. Well, Joseph Campbell wrote this phenomenal book back in the late 40s called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he discusses in this book kind of the various archetypal journeys that heroes take in film and in literature and on the stage. And the, hero, the hero's journey, according to Campbell, involves pushing through boundaries that tend to immobilize your more average citizens. They are the ones that have the courage to step into situations, you see, that they know that they're overmatched for, that they know is going to increase their vulnerability. That's what makes them heroic. Now, interestingly enough, Joseph Campbell was brought in by George Lucas to consult on the first Star Wars trilogy. Lucas was very interested in this hero's journey of a hero pushing through their own fear and their own lack of training to become sort of this hero in that case of Luke Skywalker, a Jedi Knight. And one of his most famous quotes, that is Campbell, he says, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. Kind of found that, found its way into the film, didn't it? And maybe this is what Yoda is getting at. The cave you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. To enter, in Luke's case, to enter into the cave without his weapons is to grant trust to someone else. In this case, Yoda. For an eight, the cave that they fear, and the eightness in all of us, the cave that we fear, is showing up in the real world without armor. It's showing up for life without anything between us and the dangerous world except for another person, in our case, God. Now, in the gospel passage that we read, Jesus does something very similar to what Paul does in Galatians. He doesn't back away from conflict. In fact, he pushes in and he aggressively confronts the Pharisees who were not only trying or weren't trying just to harm him psychologically, they were trying to extinguish him physically. They wanted to kill him. And yet Jesus steps in and aggressively confronts them over something that was very important. Now, the Pharisees, if you don't know, were sort of the religious fundamentalists of the days. They were, they were the theological border control. No one got in without their say-so. And they were among the most religiously devout people who also created a kingdom that was devoid of justice and mercy 
and tenderness and love. And Jesus says of them in verse 4, which we didn't read, they, the Pharisees, tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And then in verse 13, woe, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. This isn't the obliging, pushover, nice and smiley Jesus that maybe we expect to find in the pages of the Bible, or maybe we want to find there. He's not playing nice here. He's not being servile or obsequious to the dominant culture. He's not winning friends and influencing people. Like Paul, he's being extraordinarily aggressive and confrontational. But also like Paul, he's not lashing out over a personal slight. He's not just trying to get even. He's walking up to establishment religion, the theological gatekeepers of the day, and he's poking them in the chest over and over, and he's saying, this stops here. And he does that without armor. Only the truth of the gospel, the truth of himself, and the courage to speak truth to power. He's our vulnerable protector. He's the archetypal hero. And his journey takes him all the way to the cross. He makes himself vulnerable repeatedly on behalf of the weak, on behalf of the oppressed, on behalf of you and I. Those whom the Pharisees had overburdened and had shut the door on, he defends them. Jesus sees the religious machine of the Pharisees and he, he smells a rat. Like an ape, he can sense it faster, quicker, and can address it more quickly than most people in the room. He sees their hypocrisy. He sees people who are being oppressed in the name of religion. While the leaders are doing what? They're busy counting their tithes on their garden plants. He says, you give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin. And this is really interesting because Leviticus and Deuteronomy had outlined these tithes that were supposed to be paid on agricultural products, corn, wine, and oil. But you see, these guys, they wanted to be super scrupulous. So they went above and beyond what was required in the law. And Jesus was obviously thrilled, right? These people don't stop with the normal tithe. They give more and more. They even tithe off the stuff they're growing in the garden that no one would know about. He's thrilled, right? Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You've tithed off You've given a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. That is justice and mercy and faithfulness. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, look, people are sick 
and people are hungry, and people are dying. And you're competing with one another about who can give the largest tithe off your garden plants. Eights, you see, hate hypocrisy. They hate hypocritical religion. And that's why it's so important that we give space to eights in the church because they'll be the first people that will call us on our BS, that'll call me on it. Like all of us, eights remember what it's like to be a scared kid, to know that the world is unsafe and you can't defend yourself from it. And so they armor up as adults, still trying to protect that sort of little kid that's inside somewhere, that was never allowed to enter the cave of fear on their own and to develop that courage, to develop that resiliency. Maybe they were overprotected or maybe they were pushed out into the world too soon without the maturity to deal with it. And I don't want to be overly psychoanalytical here, but eights, you see, still understand, maybe in a, in a more intuitive way than the rest of us, what it's, be, what it's like to be weak and to be vulnerable and to be oppressed by systems and environments that they can't control. And so they hate it when the vulnerable are harmed by the powerful. And friends, if you're an eight or if you recognize a certain level of eightness in you, as we all probably do, the pathway to help, health, the pathway to spiritual maturity is to acknowledge that the world is indeed unsafe. It's more unsafe than we likely are aware of. But also at the same time to learn that because of how unsafe it is, our armor that we develop in our own thinking, our own ingenuity, isn't up to the task to protect us. It will never fully inoculate us from the hurts of the world. And so like Luke learning to move forward, move toward the danger, trusting in Yoda, ultimately the force in his case, instead of his weapons, instead of his armor, that's the hero's journey, right, for Luke. Healthy eights. Learn to show up in the world without all their armor. And maybe you can't take it all off at once, but you kind of take a little bit of a piece of it off at a time. And you learn that that was okay. That was scary, but God was with me. They learn over time to show up in the world without armor, trusting that it is God who ultimately has their back. And then they can use that keen eye for injustice and for hypocrisy, their unusual willingness to enter into conflict, to move toward injustice and to put themselves in danger for other people. You see, then their confrontational nature isn't expressed to just defend themselves against personal slight, but it is to defend justice in the world faithfulness and mercy, like Paul, like Jesus, who showed up in life for us, defensive and vulnerable, absorbing the injustice of the world 
for us. You see, he dispensed with his armor, allowing all of the blows of the world to fall on him instead of us. And as we begin to work that into our psyche, into our spirit, we can begin to face danger without all of our armor, and we can begin to choose to move toward danger on behalf of others, as Jesus did. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would help us to walk that tightrope of understanding that the world is so deeply unsafe and that there are no guarantees, that faithfulness, that spiritual devotion doesn't mean that life will always turn out well for us, and yet ultimately our armor can't protect us, and yet you do. And so help us to walk that tightrope between acknowledging what the world is and what it can do to us and knowing that you are ultimately for us and you love us and you embrace us with your grace. And I pray as we come to this table that we would see that tension that the world broke even you, that it fell upon you and that you were harmed. And let us see that it was on our behalf that you went to battle for us And we pray that we would receive this meal with great faith and with great hope. In Jesus' name, amen.